Well, church, is good to be with you today in a little different role this morning than doing what Ryan was just uh, doing today, but I'm grateful for Ryan being able to step in uh, to be able to lead our church in worship. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege it is to stand before you and open God's Word and preach out of God's Word to you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Um, so it's in the last book of your Bible, and we're going to spend some time in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. Um, this is one of those books of the Bible that, you know, quite frankly, because of its being ap- apocalyptic literature, it's, um, it's never been an easy book for me when I read it. I mean, I, I'm always so, I'm, I'm interested in it. I'm always like, wow, what's going on here? What's that all about? But there are some things that you read right away that you don't have to um, have lots and lots of commentaries for, right? And that's really what you're going to see when you start getting into um, chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. Um, and this is, uh, I've just been wanting to spend time this year personally just to come to spend more time in the book of Revelation, to get more acquainted with it, more familiar with it, to know God's word better here. Um, and so this has just been me personally spending time uh, in my time alone with the Lord in the mornings, um, going kind of verse by verse, slowly through the book of Revelation, taking my time. And when I came to chapter two, of course, these are um, verses that probably are pretty familiar, especially um, what we're going to read here in the first seven verses. But um, these verses in particular for me, I, I was just really haunted by them. Um, I felt like this, this kind of had, um, it, it had me all over it. And, and so perhaps when I was thinking of an opportunity to preach, you know, Ken asked if I might uh, preach one of these Sundays. And, um, and so today is the day that I got a chance to, to do that. And I was thinking, what, what would I bring to the church uh, at New Branch? And so uh, just as I've been going through, again, God's Word, and in particular Revelation, I just felt like these verses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, um, as they've been uh, incredibly challenging for me personally, that perhaps maybe it's a message that we need to hear as God's assembled people this morning. So you have your Bible. We're in chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's turn to it, and let's begin reading in verse 1. These are the words of Jesus Christ. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words this morning. We thank you for your word that is unchangeable. We thank you for your word that will endure forever. We know that um, the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but we know it is your word, God, that endures forever. Thank you, God, for this living word. We pray, God, that your word this morning would speak to your church. 
That's what your intention was. This is a letter originally to your church in Ephesus, but also to our church today and to all churches around the world for all the time. We pray, God, that we would hear it with ears to hear it. As the Spirit speaks to us this morning, God, give us ears to hear. Give us the ability to understand what it is that you're telling us in these verses, that we need to take spiritual inventory of our life. Take a look at the things that we are doing and why we're doing them. And God, help us to see where and if we have in any place grown cold in our affection for you, grown cold in our love for you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would um, just allow your word to be a mirror for us spiritually today and that your spirit again would press upon us what we need to hear, what we need to see, and that you, God, would grant repentance where it is needed. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name, amen. So there's seven churches here in the book of Revelation that the apostle John is given um, instructions by Jesus to give uh, a letter to. This is the first one. This is the, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is uh, an important city. This is, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the capital of Asia Minor, but it is one of the most important cities there in the area. In particular, it was, uh, had about a quarter of a million people who lived there. That's, that's pretty significant when you think about that time 2,000 years ago. This is the end of the first century, right after Jesus uh, had been crucified and risen. And it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And the significance of Ephesus is that it, situ- it was situated at a major trade route, you know, about 50 or 60 miles um, from Patmos. And that's where um, John, the apostle, one of John's 12 disciples, um, the one you might know affectionately, he called himself in his gospel, John's gospel, the one whom Jesus loved. This is the one who writes um, to us from the book of Revelation. And he was at the Isle of Patmos where he was exiled for uh, his witnessing of Christ. And um, he was not martyred, one of the only ones not martyred, and yet here he is um, patiently enduring until, uh, until God would take him home. And he was given quite the, uh, quite the vision by the Lord Jesus Christ about what would happen. And it would be a vision also that would encourage the church to endure and to persevere in the midst of great trial and suffering and persecution. And this is the, uh, the situation of God's church all throughout the 200, uh, 2,000 years. God's church is a part, uh, because, of its, uh, because we're not a part of this kingdom, we're a part of Christ's kingdom. And it's not like this world that we will always find ourselves, if we're faithful in obedience to Christ, we will always find ourselves in opposition to the world around us. This world is going to always want to try to conform us into its image, into its lifestyle, into its worldview. But Christ would have none of it, and his people should have none of it. And so if we're being faithful to Christ, we will see that the world ought to treat us much like it treated him. And so the message that God gives to his people through the Apostle John is to endure, persevere, don't give up, hang in there. You know? And he reminds them of these things. And in chapter 1 of, 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 uh, of Revelation, John is given a vision of the ascended, risen, glorified Jesus Christ. And that is where these words take great power and authority because of who they come from, whose words that these are. Well, Ephesus, you you learn a little bit about it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, sort of where it kind of gets its start. You see um, Priscilla and Aquila um, over here in Ephesus beginning to take the gospel there with them to that town. They begin hearing a man named Apollos who's an incredible teacher and preacher of God's word, except that he only knows um, so much as John's baptism up to that point. He didn't know fully Jesus Christ, the, the end of all that John, John the Baptist was pointing forward to. Well, Priscilla and Aquila begins to tell him more about Jesus, give him more fully the scriptures. And he's an incredible teacher and preacher of God's word. And he's let loose preaching and teaching throughout Ephesus. Then we see the Apostle, John, uh, Apostle Paul writing, you know, he's, we know him as having written 13 books of our New Testament um, through the hand of, the, um, of God. And he 
I spent at least three years at one time in Ephesus teaching and preaching and equipping and edifying and strengthening the believers there. And uh, we see that in Acts chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 20. In chapter 19, you see that Ephesus was the center of worship for um, Artemis. Artemis, or in the Roman deity, would be a Diana. And this is um, a pretty a pagan worship, pagan religion. So there's plenty of paganism, lots of perversion going on in the name of, of God in that city. Um, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, it was known, uh, Ephesus as well, was known in the world for its wealth, its power, fame, superstition, and idolatry. And yet this is where a church, right in the middle of it, is a pretty dark place. And yet the church grown there. The church was birthed there in Ephesus. And God did great things through that church in a very difficult situation. Some of the leaders there I mentioned, you had Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Tychicus, Timothy, uh, Paul's protege also was, uh, was a pastor there for a time or an elder there. And you see the Apostle John himself also had time there in Ephesus. So as far as a church goes, it's going to be hard to find a church outside of the city of Jerusalem that had better teaching than this church had. I mean, they were steeped with, uh, with doctrine, with godly, godly men, wise men, people who had known the Lord Jesus, true apostles who had seen Jesus, listened to Jesus, saw him crucified and also risen. And so this is the context of this city that um, Jesus Christ gives to John. He says, I want you to take this letter. He dictates a letter to the church in Ephesus, and here's, here's the words that I want, uh, want you to send to them. And so in chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1, this is where we begin. Jesus addresses the angel of the church in Ephesus, and he asserts his authority. So verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, who is the angel? What is this? When it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Who's the angel? Well, it could be a couple things here. Commentators say, well, it could be a guardian angel that, you know, for each of these churches, maybe um, the Lord Jesus had set apart an angel to kind of guard and protect and look after each of these churches. That's, that's one possibility that commentators have suggested. But also the other word is this. I mean, the word um, angel in, uh, in Greek really just means messenger. It could mean angel, but it also means messenger. And so it could very well mean that it's a human messenger, like a human pastor or, um, or an elder there of the church, a leader there in the church of Ephesus that is to get this message from the Lord, kind of a representative for the church there. And then other commentators would say it's almost like um, by saying the angel uh, of the church there, it's like um, the spirit of the church, uh, personifying the church, representative of the church as a whole. So that perhaps could be any of the meanings here um, of who is the one who is to receive this letter, but it's to be read. Understand that this is a letter that's not just to individuals. This is a letter to the uh, assembled people of God. This is a letter to God's church. And so when, when you hear these words today, it's not just, what does this mean for me personally? It's also, hear, these, hear this message is, what does this mean for our church specifically? Right? It does have a personal element to it, of course, but you need to hear that the intention of this letter is to a church as a whole. That's, that's the purpose here of, of this writing. And so this letter is going to the leader here at the church or to the church as a whole. And then Jesus asserts his authority saying, okay, not only is this, this letter to the, the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does this mean? 
you have to go to chapter 1 to kind of get a picture of what Jesus is talking about here. In chapter 1, John the Apostle gets this vision of the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ. In verse 12, this is what he sees. Then I turn, look in chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the vision of Jesus glorified in heaven that John saw. And how did he respond in verse 17? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Church, Jesus is not, he's not tame. Jesus is, is a roaring lion. Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Jesus, has got all power, all authority. There is none higher than he. He has no rival. There is none beside him. He is the all-sovereign, almighty, omnipotent God. The apostle John sees and gets a vision of him. And just anyone who ever saw a vision of Jesus Christ, whether it would be in the Old Testament, Isaiah from chapter 6, anyone who got a, a picture of who Jesus was, they always fell as though dead before him. We have no idea the holiness that we sung about of this God in which he was in the presence of. You just, you, you felt completely inadequate. You feel completely, like Jesus with his burning eyes sees through you, sees everything, knows you better than you know yourself. You, all those things that you try to hide in yourself, all those things you try to cover up because you don't like in yourself, it's all exposed before the eyes of Jesus. And so anyone who ever has a picture of this Jesus always just prostrates and humbles himself before God almost to the extent of feeling like, I, woe is me, as Isaiah said. I'm a man of unclean lips. John says here in chapter 1, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the one Jesus is writing to. This, Jesus refers to himself in this letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You have to go to chapter 1, verse 20 to say, what, what are these seven stars? Well, the seven stars, he tells us, are the angels of the seven churches. So that could mean, as we talked about already, it could mean you know, literal angels, but likely it probably means um, the leaders there, the church, the messengers of the church, the elders there, the church, or the church itself as a whole. The church and the church leaders are there in the hand of Jesus Christ. What does that mean when we think about that the churches are in the hand of Jesus and the leaders are in the hand of Jesus? It means Jesus has all authority Jesus has all power. He is sovereign over his church. And we remember when we think about Jesus holding uh, us in his hand, it recalls us going back to John chapter 20 when he talks about being a great shepherd or the good shepherd. And we think about those that, uh, that are given to him by the Father. He says, I will lose none of them. Uh, it talks about him, all, all the sheep, those who have put their faith in him and believe in him. Jesus says of those sheep, he holds them in his hand and there's not one who can snatch them out of his hand. And he says, even greater than that, my father who is even greater than me says, holds them in his hand and none can snatch them away from my father's hand. So we're doubly secure in Christ. So he says, church, this is who I am. I'm the one who holds all the angels of the churches in my hand. I have you. I'm protecting you. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I have all authority. I have care over you. This is he who speaks. 
And then he says beyond that, not just the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, but he says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, what are the seven golden lampstands? You go back to chapter 1, verse 20, and Jesus tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So Jesus, when he says that he walks among the golden lampstands, it means Jesus walks among his churches. He is near to us, church. He is with us right now in this very place. Jesus Christ, by his very spirit, is here among his people. He is acquainted with us. He knows us so very well. He's not distant. He's not far removed, but he is intimate and close to his church. We're in his hand, and he is with us. And this is the one who has full authority, and he speaks these words. We need to, we need to hear that salutation. This is the one speaking to the church. So we get to verse 2, and Jesus says, Because I hold you in my hand, because I walk among you, I know your works. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. These, these are Jesus' con, uh, commendation of the church. Jesus has many good things to say about his church in Ephesus. In many, many ways, they are a faithful church, a solid church, a strong and mature church. What does he say? He, he begins to tell them um, because, he, because he walks with them and he knows them. He says, I know your works. You know, nothing that you do is ever, um, ever hidden from God. You know, it may be hidden from everyone else, but it's not hidden from God. God sees everything that you do, but he also sees beyond what you do to why you do it. And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. But God sees everything. It's never lost on him. It's never, never missed. Even he says in, in scripture, even if you give a cup of water to the very least of these, it's not forgotten. It's not, it's not unknown that to do the very smallest thing, Jesus says, you've done it unto me. Right? He tells us that in Matthew chapter 25. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done to me. It doesn't even matter, even if it's the smallest thing, such as a cold glass of water to someone who's thirsty and needs help. Jesus sees all of those things. And so he's talking to his church in Ephesus. And, and he says, I, I know your works. I know your toil. And that word, it means hard labor. Hard labor to the point of exhaustion. I know that you have spent yourself for me. I know that you are doing good and right works to the point that you're not just physically exhausted, but you are emotionally drained and you are spiritually just wiped out. You are being spent, you're spending and being spent for me. And I know this. I know your toil. I know your hard labor for me in the gospel. And then he goes on to say, I also know your patient endurance. Because you are in a city that is pagan, there's all kinds of pressure for you to conform, to worship the emperor there uh, in Rome, to, to bow the knee before him. And yet, I know that you are patiently enduring under trials. I know this. You're doing good. Keep it up. And he says, I also know you, you are intolerant of evil. What does he say here in verse 2? I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He cannot bear with those who are evil. So perhaps... This is a church that was even using and exercising church discipline. And when there were people who would name the name of Christ and say that I'm a Christian, and maybe perhaps they were baptized into the faith, and yet over time they begin 
to deviate from the faith. And it shows throughout their life and their lifestyle that they are not walking with Christ and they are not holding to the truth. They're not holding to the faith that was once for all passed on. And so perhaps this is a church that really did exercise church discipline, that they were intolerant of evil because of what it would mean to the name of Christ. But it says, so this is a church that was not neutral. They were not passive. They were not apathetic about evil. They took action in their church when there was evil in the church. This is not like the Corinthian church that Jesus had to get onto or that Paul had to, Jesus through Paul had to get onto in chapter, uh, chapter five to expel the immoral brother. It's nothing, nothing like that is going on here. This is the church that when, he saw, when they saw evil, they took it very seriously and they dealt with it. But then it tells us in, chapter, uh, in, in, in verse two as well, I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. Jesus commends their sound doctrine. He commends their spiritual discernment. These are people who know the word and they know that when a false teacher, no matter what he may call about himself, he may claim that he has the authority of Christ. He may claim that he's been sent by Christ, but they test and they weigh his words. They test and weigh his words against scripture. They test and weigh his words against what God has already said. And they found them to be false. So Jesus commends them for their knowledge of the Bible, for the application of the Bible, to be able to spiritually discern truth from error. And again, hating evil being able to expose false teachers and heretics and not putting up with it. These are all such good things. And he continues in verse three, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. This is a church that has not caved to the outside pressure to conform to the surrounding culture. And they've done this for Christ's sake. He says, you've done this. Uh, you've done this for, for, uh, for my name's sake. You've done this for my reputation. You've done this for my glory. This is a church that continued in their witness in the midst of heavy and intense persecution and opposition. And they didn't grow weary. They didn't consider a burden to, that was too great to bear. So by all outward accounts, I think this is probably a church, just about everybody in this room would say, you know, sign me up. I want to join that church. This sounds like a great church to be a part of. They, they care about the things of the Lord. They're busy about the right things. It's so good. But let me ask you, church, what do you think Jesus might say about us? He's, he's commending so many good things about this church in Ephesus, so many good things. And, and I wonder, what would Jesus commend about New Branch? What are those things that if Jesus were to write a letter to our church today, these are the things he says, I know your works, New Branch. And how would he fill in the blanks? Would he say not just your toil, um, your endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but how, he, how would he fill in that, those blanks for our church? I know your works, New Branch. I know your devotion to the Bible. I know you hold it high and you esteem it. I know that you preach God's word, my word, verse by verse. I know that you care deeply about getting my word right and, and applying doctrine. I know that you're devoted to it. I know you care about doctrine. You care about getting word, my word right. I know you care about holiness. It matters that you want to honor me and, and live a life that represents me and reflects me in your life, that you would put away sin, put away falsehood, that you would put on Christ, and that you would grow in my likeness and character. I know this about you. I know that you're a church that cares about your city. You, you do serve tequila every year, a whole week. You take time out. You, you set time apart so that you can serve your city and do so and, and, and care for the least of these and look for ways to show my love to the city in practical ways. 
I know church, I know your toil, I know your works, I know you care about my name and my fame across the world. Not just here locally in Decula or in Gwinnett County, but you care about it in Boston, you care about what's going on in the nations around the world as you send out missionaries and as you support missionaries and as you raise up leaders to send them out. I know this about you, church. Is that what he would say about us? Are there other things that Jesus would commend about New Branch? Hopefully in our small groups tonight, you'll talk about those things. What are those things that Jesus might say? I know your works. I have this to commend about you. But then when we get to verse four, it all changes. He's so much positive to say, so many good commendations. I think if you add them up, there's like nine good things that he just laid out. And then he lowers the boom in verse four. And it's just one just harsh deeply difficult rebuke and condemnation to receive and to, and to hear. In verse four, this is Jesus's word to the church in Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you, you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I don't know, for those of you who are married in the room, if you can think for a moment, You've been married maybe for a series of years, maybe 20, 30, 40 years or more, maybe even five. You've been married, and then after a while, maybe your spouse, your husband, your wife begins to tell you, you know, I know, I know you do all the things that you're supposed to do. I know, you know, you, you provide for, for me, and I know that you take care of the house, and I know you do all these things, but I, t- I detect that you just, you just don't love me like you used to. You just don't love me like you used to. That would be a stinging rebuke, wouldn't it? Even if you're going through all the motions, even if you're doing all the, the things that, you know, that, that you're supposed to do in marriage. But what happens if you do those things without, like, uh, the motive is, is, is missing. You're not doing them in love. You're doing them, and they're good and, and good right things, and you should continue doing them. But have you lost love? Has your love grown cold in marriage? That would be a devastating blow. What happens between people when uh, at, at the altar on the day they get married, the joy, the excitement, everything that happens there, the promises that are made, the love that's in their eyes, all those kinds of things? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. So, so what happens on that day when the church is gathered, I might hold on a second. <laughs> Just a little announcement, a little. We can't get away from commercials. Um, so think about the day that you, were, you got married and you looked into... Um, your future husband, your future wife, and, and you look in their face and, and, you, and you gave your, um, your vows. And you made your vows before God and for those who were gathered in attendance. And you made all these promises. And, and more than just these promises and the covenant that you entered into, I mean, if you were in, you know, in, in the crowd and you're looking upon it, because I'm, I'm remembering not that long ago, actually, Hunter and Lexi, I remember not that long ago that I was looking into your eyes when you guys were getting married just a, a few months ago and just saw the joy, just saw the love. I mean, it was just your eyes, it was just like, just, you're giddy. You're just giddy. And you still are. That hasn't changed. And, but, but here's the thing. What happens between when, when couples do this, they get married and all the joy and all the excitement, all the love, and then what happens 10, 15 years down the road when they're uh, filing for divorce? What changed? What happened? Um, 
what, what, what took place? Why do they all of a sudden, they can't stay, I can't even be the, in the same room with this person. What, what happened? Or what happens when, you know, maybe you stay married, but, you know, you really don't talk together anymore. You don't spend time with it. You don't enjoy each other anymore. You, you know, hey, I made this commitment, this covenant, and I'm going to, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm a man of my word. I'm going to stay in there. But you don't love anymore. It's that love is, is lacking. This passion is gone. What is that? Would, that would devastate you, devastate your, your, your spouse. And this is, I believe, what Jesus is telling the church here in Ephesus. He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. What is the love that we had at first? It's kind of ambiguous. Does he mean that you've left um, your love for me? Jesus is saying, well, perhaps it very well could mean that we've, we don't love Jesus like we used to love him. And I think that's certainly a very good and right application of Jesus' words here. That maybe we've grown cold in our love and affection for Christ. We may be serving him, but maybe we're not serving him with the love that we once had, with the devotion and the passion and the affection that once kindled our hearts. But I think it also could mean very well, because he's speaking to the church here, that it also means that uh, they've lost the love they had at first for one another. That as a church, they've grown cold in their love for each other. They become calloused. Sometimes, uh, as you just go about the business of church and you become an established church after time, you know, you just, you just kind of go through the motions and you just don't, you don't take care of one another anymore. You don't see each other as your brothers and sisters in Christ, as your family for which you're responsible. And that just if anything were to happen to one of your children that you recognize, if it happens to someone else in my church family, it's the same. That's my family. I need to care for them and love them. That maybe we've grown cold in our love for our church family as well. See, what happened here to the church at Ephesus and what is so easily that can happen to our church and what can easily happen and has happened, I think, from time to time in my life as well, is that duty replaces delight. Duty replaces delight. It begins with delight in Christ. At one point, your eyes are open to see his magnificence, his glory, and his incredible love that was poured out for you and his life lived as a sacrifice and his death at the cross and resurrection, all so that you could be brought into right relationship with God. And all of a sudden, you saw that, hey, God loves me, not just loves in general because God is love, but God loves me personally, and, and that changes you. You believe it, and it changes your heart and your love. You know, you, you, you respond to the love that God has for you. The Bible says that we love because God first loved us. You've received the love that God has for you, and you've responded with love back to God. That's, that's how it began. But somewhere along the road, we, we, we began to kind of get into uh, just the motions and, and road of this is what it looks like to do church. This is what it looks like to be a Christian, all right, in the mornings. You know, you have time, you know, with the Lord in, in the Bible. You have devotions. And, and maybe what happened in, the, in, in your times with the Lord, you know, did you, you used to look forward to them. You used to get up early and plan, you know, start your alarm so you wouldn't miss that, that it was a priority for you. Well, what changed? At some point, duty has replaced the light. We do the things we know we're supposed to do because that's just what we're supposed to do but maybe we don't do it with the same affection and the same intensity and the same passion that we had at first. We don't care for the body of Christ that we did at one time. Our love has cooled. Maybe it's turned into a mechanical obedience that we take Christ and his word for granted. We presume upon him. And this is, it's scary, church. It's scary that this can happen little bit by little bit, just over time. It can, this slow fade begins to happen. It's almost imperceptible. You don't even recognize it. But then over time, you begin to look, I'm not where I once was. 
So evidently, from Jesus' words here, all the good that he has to say to the church in Ephesus in verses 2 and 3, it's possible to be busy doing good works for the Lord. It's, busy, you, it's possible to do that and still to do them without those works being motivated by devotion and love for Christ. That's possible. It's possible. It's possible to do the good and right things for the wrong reasons. Do we do it for Christ's agenda, for Christ's glory? for his fame, for his reputation? Or somehow do we just kind of do it just because that's, that's what we're supposed to do? It's like what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse couple, first three verses. It says, if I speak in tongues, of, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, the only true service that Jesus finds acceptable is service and obedience that is motivated by love for him. If that love, if you're not doing what you're doing out of love for Christ, then it's not really acceptable to Christ. He doesn't find it acceptable. This is, this is a danger, I think, church. In particular, I think it can be a danger for churches that, that love doctrine, that love God's word. I think it can be a danger because we can get so focused on getting things right we want to believe what is right. We want to know the right things about God. And sometimes what can happen, especially for Reformed churches, we might think that we have the corner on the market for all truth and all knowledge. And then we become, um, it, what can happen is that we can become judgmental and look down on other people who aren't maybe you know, right there yet. You know, it, it can happen. It can really happen. It's scary, I think, that we can hear the great commandment where Jesus says that you are to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And after a while, we can be a church that loves, loves God with our mind really, really well. But then we've left off loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And Jesus wants all of us, not just our minds. And there are other churches that he is going to speak to here in chapters two and three that need to love him with their minds because their doctrine is bad and it is poor and they need to get that right. But Jesus is not saying, you know, oh, by the way, don't do this, do this. He's saying, do both, do both. Have good doctrine. The more that we know God through his word, the better we are in our doctrine. It should inspire deeper, greater love for him. The more that we know him, it should translate into our worship of him. And so, But what can happen, and the danger, I think, for, again, churches that are Bible churches who love God's word can begin to love God's word and at some point stop maybe in some way loving the God behind the word. We can love getting this right so much, winning every argument, showing everyone that we're right and they need to believe as we believe that we've we've lost loving him who's behind it and loving others compassionately, patiently, caring for them. That's a, that's, a, that's a scary thing. I think there's a danger for churches that, you know, are more Pentecostal or charismatic. They may be able to, you know, say, hey, they love God with all of their heart, but maybe they need to grow in their love with all of their mind. And they need, there, there's, there's two things on both sides. We need to, to get all this together, to love God with everything that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it doesn't stop there, Jesus says. The great commandment is not just that, but it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. 
You know, to love me, show your love for me. To love me is to love those who are created in my image. How well do we love those who are, have God's image stamped upon them? See, in, in, in John chapter, uh, the first John, his, his first epistle, he talks extensively about love for the brothers. He says, how can you love God whom you don't see if you don't love your brothers who you do see? It's just not possible. You can't say that you love God who you can't see if you're not loving your brother and sister in Christ right there beside you, in front of you. And so love for God is also displayed in love for God's people and love for God's church. And so I think about this as myself as, as falling here in this camp. I hear this and, and I, I hear God's word in, in the gospel of John, chapter 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. And that's how you're to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is the distinguishing mark and the distinguishing characteristic of genuine believers in Christ? It is our love. It's the love that, the, that, the same love that we've been loved by Christ. It's a sacrificial love. It's an all or nothing. I mean, it's, it's an all, you know, all in love. So we may, church, we may hold to the doctrines of grace. We may believe those and cherish those. And I think we ought to because I believe that they're truly biblical and they're good and they're right. But those doctrines of grace should make us more gracious in the way that we treat other people and the way that we see the world. And I think at times that there is, um, there's a criticism that's leveled at um, churches who, who, hold to the do- who hold the doctrines of grace, that they become cold, that they become judgmental, that they're not hospitable, that they're not welcoming and if, if all things, we, we believe that we are saved only by God's grace from first to middle to last. It's all God, every, every last bit of it, from his electing grace to his sending his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our salvation in his life, death, and resurrection, to the work of the Holy Spirit, applying that to us specifically, enlivening our heart. All of these things are the work of God by his grace. And we, we love these things. But... At what point should those, those things should cause us to be more loving, should cause us to be more gracious, not less gracious. And so I think a lot of times the, the criticism that's leveled at um, Reformed churches is that they're not gracious. May it never be said of New Branch that we're not gracious people. To have and to hold, to believe these doctrines of grace and to receive the grace of God should make us of all people the most gracious of people. We should believe the means of grace. We should practice the means of grace. We should hold these things up and, 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 and apply them to our life. But all the purposes for these things should cause us to become people who are gracious, are loving, are becoming more and more like Christ in his likeness and image. See, in Flowery Branch, where I live, you know, we're preparing to, you know, by God's grace, hopefully plant a church there. And just doing... Um, demographic research and preparation for what, who lives in our city, asking a little bit, well, why, pe- why do people not go to church in our city? Some of the reasons that come back um, is that the church is um, too focused on money as far as they're concerned. Like, that's just a big deal. They see that as that's, that seems to be what the church cares most about. Or this is another, um, uh, I guess, criticism that's leveled that the people in our city toward the church and why they choose not to go is that it's too, they perceive that the church is just too judgmental. They look down their noses at people, that they're condescending, that they're condemning. 
Another reason that's given is they don't trust church leaders. And I don't know how much of that's because of their experience or just all that's going on in the world around us right now with all the, everything that we're, we're hearing about things that are going on in churches. But they don't trust church leaders. Another reason that they, they say they choose not to go to church is because there are too many conflicts within the church. Why would I want to go there if all there is is infighting and bickering and, and complaining about silly and nonsensical stuff? Why would I want to go be a part of that, right? And then another thing is that what they say for our city is they just don't feel welcome. They don't feel welcome by the church. If they were to go again, I think it may have something to do with being judged or, 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 or a spirit of condemnation perhaps maybe. I don't know. But this is what it looks like in, in, in my city. This is what it looks like where we live. And so the church needs to be a church full of God's grace, a church that, is love God, that loves God well and that loves one another well because people are not seeing it. People are not seeing that. So what is Jesus' words here in Revelation to the church in Ephesus after he levels this accusation before them? They have abandoned the love that they had at first. He gives a prescription in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He gives us three things to do here. They're all related. They all start with R. And I'm not, this is an easy one right here. They're, Jesus gives them to us right here. I don't even have to sit here and come up with them. The first one is remember. Remember, remember how you used to love Jesus. Remember from where you have fallen. What was it like when you first came to know that Jesus loved you and you received his love for you personally? What was that like when you knew that he saw your sin, but because he went to the cross, he paid for it? And if you put your faith in him, that sin was forgiven and your obstacle was removed and your relationship with God, you could now be reconciled to him, no longer an enemy of God, but adopted as a son and as a, as a daughter of God. What was that like when that realization hit you and you began to realize, I can call God Father and he calls me child. He calls me daughter. He calls me son. He loves me. He is for me. He is not against me. What was that like? Remember how you used to love Jesus. Remember what that was like. That when you heard Jesus' name, it was sweet. Every time you heard it, it was on your lips and on your tongue. You could not stop but talk about him. Anyone who would listen to you, you just wanted to talk about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus, the lover of my soul. I mean, you first meet the, um, your boyfriend, your girlfriend who turns into your fiance, who turns into your husband, your wife. Let me tell you, you talk about them a lot because you're smitten with them. You are in love with them. You want to talk about them. You're thinking about them all the time when you're not with them. I wonder what they're doing right now. You're thinking about how you can um, show them love and what you might do that, that they will receive. I mean, you're thinking about these things. It's on your mind always. They're on your mind. They're on your lips. They're on your tongue. Think of what it was like when you first came to know Jesus and how you were eager to hear him speak through his word. That every word you heard, this is a gift from God to me. God speaks, and I have it written in a book, and I can open it any time. And if I forget, I can go back and read it. It's right there in black and white. At times in red and white, I've got it right here. The gift of God's word and how you couldn't wait to be in it and let, just enjoying his presence. 
and how, you, how prayer wasn't a hard thing for you because you just loved being with your father. You just loved telling him everything that was going on in your life. You knew that he knew it already, and you just enjoyed being with him. Your time with the Lord was a conversation. You read the Bible, hearing God speak to you, and you responded. You just spoke back to God in prayer, and it was just a conversation going back and forth, back and forth. Next thing you know, you couldn't believe, oh, wow, look at the time, because you just loved being with your, your, your father. You loved being with Jesus. Whatever it would cost you to follow Christ, nothing seemed, nothing seemed too great. You were willing to give it all up for him. No sacrifice was too big because Jesus was worthy. Jesus was worth it all. You loved to be together with the people of God whenever the doors of the church were open. You wanted to be under the preaching of his word. You wanted to be in fellowship with other Christians because you knew that you had so much to learn from them and that there's so much of Jesus that you would experience from the body of Christ. You love being, you would never want to miss a time when communion was being served, how you would love to be around the Lord's table and know his love for you personally as you remember and you touch and you taste and you see the bread and the cup. You remember his love for you and you wanted to always be in that fellowship with him. You loved being with God's people. You wanted to be, uh, you wanted to serve. When you served God's people, you did so with joy. It was never with, um, with a bad attitude. When it was your Sunday or when it was your week as a, as a base group to clean the church, you're like, great, I get to clean the church because I remember who I'm working for. Not just my brothers and sisters in Christ, but all work that I do, I'm rendering to the Lord. Every work the Bible tells us in Colossians is work done to him. And if I, this is a way I can do this with a joyful and grateful heart, with all humility, praise be to God so that the church we gather in on Sunday can be clean and the church gather and it just be a, a welcome, hospitable place. You do this with joy. Not, oh, I can't believe it's our week to, to serve the church, to, to clean the church again. It's just like six weeks ago. Oh my goodness, here we go again, right? Or instead, you see it as, here's a great opportunity that I get to demonstrably love my Lord and love my brothers and sisters in Christ. You remember, remember, he says, remember, remember, remember from where you have fallen. Remember how you were passionate about evangelism. Remember how you had the name of Jesus on your tongue and you wanted everyone who didn't know him, who were under the wrath of God, you wanted them to know Jesus. Not just so that they would have their sins forgiven and be in heaven, but so they would know that they're loved by God. You want them to know the love that you had. You wanted them to know that as well. And that made you bold and courageous and you had no fear because Jesus was Lord. And what did you have to worry about? He holds you in the the palm of his hand. Nothing can happen to you. You remember those things. You remember what that was like? Maybe you didn't know the Bible very well, but you knew what you knew about Jesus and whatever you knew is that he saved sinners and you told people about that. Your life was marked by delight. You just loved the Lord. You loved his word. You loved his people. It wasn't a burden. Do you remember from where you've fallen? That's what Jesus says. Remember, what was it like as a church? You know all the one another commands in scripture that we're supposed to do that Bodhi prayed about in the beginning of our service? so many there, but here's some. You know, we're to love one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to bear with one another. We're to be hospitable or show hospitality to one another. We're to accept one another. We're to greet one another with a holy kiss. When's the last time you've done that, church? Rip, repent. Go back to the first. Oh, I don't think we've ever really did that, though, right? We, we're supposed to go back to the first thing. I, I don't think we really did that, but if you did, go back to doing that, right? Um, what was it like with your worship? didn't matter if the music was good or not good. Was it true? Was what they were singing truth? 
Is it truth based on what God says and the revelation of God and how he's revealed himself to the, in, in, in his word? When the church gets to sing, holy, 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 does your heart swell? Does it swell? Or is it just kind of, I'm so tired of this song. I've heard it forever. And you, you just go, all right, you know, you're saying, man, the band's not very good, or this is not happening, or whatever. I mean, are, where's your mind? Are you thinking on the Lord? Are you saying, I get a chance to say these things back to God because they're true, and he deserves this from me, right? You remember how far from where you've fallen. What's your worship gathering like when you come with the people of God? Do you come to worship and to declare his greatness? Because the person next to you or behind you or beside you needs to hear that because maybe their faith is lagging and they need you to do that for them because maybe you need to carry them when they can't carry themselves. And when you sing, it builds up and lifts up the body of Christ. And how would you not sing for all that Christ has done for you? So just, he tells us to remember, remember from where you've fallen. It's an ongoing process of reflecting, going back to this is the way it was. Church, have you, have you changed for the better? The longer you've known Christ, do you, you love him better today than you did before? Is he more dear, more precious, more sweet to you now? Or was there a time when he was sweeter and more precious and more valuable in your life than he is today. When we say, well, love matures, it looks different as it, as it ages. Yes, it does, but your affections for Christ should not, should not wane. Your affection for Christ should be burning brighter every day because you know him more. You've found him more faithful. You've walked with him longer. It should be greater and stronger and, again, more passionate. So Jesus gives this prescription for the loveless church. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent is what he tells us next. Repent. That's a word. It says turn. Turn in your mind. Agree with God that this is wrong and then change. Stop doing what you're doing and now do what is right. Repent. Repent. Turn in your heart. Change your mind. Move and change from duty and return to delight. And that's the next thing he tells us to do in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That means return. Return to the works you did at first. Those works that were motivated by love and that sprung from your heart, which was fully enraptured and in love with Jesus. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that the love of Christ controls us. Is that true of you today? Is that true of our church? Is the love that we have for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for us, does that control what we do or is something else controlling it? Is there something else that controls what we do? Is there something else behind that motivates what we do and why we do it? Because what makes, the, 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 what's acceptable to, to God is, is that we do this out of love. That's what should control us. So the form that repentance takes is not just a change of mind, but it always is accompanied with action. Repentance must involve action. And what is the action he tells us? Return. Do the works you did before. Your first works. The ones we just talked about. What you remember what it was like when you were more passionately in love with God. The love you had toward him. The love you had towards his people. Go back. Do those things. Return. That's what repentance looks like. It's not just agreeing with God, yeah, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and nothing changes. 
Do everything in all your power to get back and to cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me that I've taken your love for granted. And I don't love you as I used to. And I don't love you as I, I don't love you as you deserve. God, have mercy on me. May the glories of the gospel ignite my heart again. Show me who you are in Christ. Show me on the pages of scripture. Speak to me. Help me see you again. Help me fall in love again with your people, God. And sometimes it doesn't say return to your first feelings. It says return to your first work. Sometimes, most of the time, the feeling's not always there. You do the works and then the heart follows. And then the heart follows. But why do you do the works? Go back at God, I want to do this for you. I want to do this because I love you and because you are worthy and you deserve this. That's, that's what that looks like. The second part of verse 5 Jesus then gives a warning to the church at Ephesus. He says, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He says, if not, here's the warning, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is, that is a heavy word. That is a heavy word. What does it mean when Jesus says that he will remove their lampstand from its place. It means that will be a church that ceases to exist. He will close their doors. They won't be open for worship. They won't be preaching anymore the word. Their witness will have been snuffed out in, in their city. It's that serious. It may not be serious to us. Like, Jesus, come on now. Look at all the things you just commended us. We're doing all these things right. I mean, really? Yeah, you may be doing all these things right, but you're missing the biggest thing, the most important thing, my love for me, love for each other. It's like a Pharisee who's so intent on doing all the details of the law and, and, and misses the spirit of the law entirely. The spirit of the law is love. Love fulfills the whole law. That's what Jesus said in the great commandment. When you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, he says all the law and the prophets, everything about the Bible, every command comes back to this. It's fulfilled when you love God and love people. So if we get too focused on just doing things without love, we're not, we're not really fulfilling the law. And it's that serious. If we don't repent, if we don't return to do the works that we did at first, to the love that we had at first, Jesus says that he will remove our lampstand from its place unless we repent. I, I struggle. I mean, I, I struggle with that. You know, I just, I listen to that. I hear that and it's hard. Jesus says some really hard things. But we need to hear what he says, believe what he says, and take action according to what he says. So what are, we, what are we to think about this? Jesus' priority for the church. Do all the things that he commended you about. Keep, keep doing those things, but do them with love. Infuse all of your works with love. Love for me, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It would seem, in some sense, that Jesus would rather there be no church than an unloving church. That's, just let that sink in for a moment. It would seem that that's the implication we're to understand from this. Better to have no church at all, no witness, than a poor witness. 
Because if we're going to truly witness to the one true and living God, we will be a witness of love. It's like the Old Testament prophets. You know, God gives us a difficult message to hear and to heed, but he gives us time. He calls us to repent. God is patient. And there's time for this church. He tells them all is not lost in verse six. He says, yet, yet this you have, you hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What does that mean? Well, sometimes to love Jesus is also to hate the things that Jesus hates. Do we love the things Jesus loves? will also necessarily mean that we hate the things that Jesus hates. And in this case, Jesus hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Well, what do we know about them? Not a whole lot. All right, it's just kind of lost. It's lost to us in history. The Nicolaitan heresy, we just don't know that much. It's kind of um, linked to what we see in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, a little bit here, um, where Jesus is talking to another church in Pergamum. Um, But uh, it's probably linked to... Um, idolatrous practices, you know, food sacrificed uh, to idols and eating that food, um, ad, you know, sexual, sexual immorality included in worship. It's basically taking these things and adding them to their faith in their, in their worship of Jesus. And he's saying, you hate those works, rightly so, because I hate those works. So that's good. You, that's a good thing. So your cause is not lost. It's not over. You still, you have this. And then Jesus gives us in verse 7 a promise to the church that overcomes. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We are to hear and to heed what the Spirit says to the churches. That is plural. Jesus is giving this message to the church in Ephesus, but this is a letter, the whole book of Revelation is a letter that's going to be read by all the churches in Asia Minor. All seven of them are going to hear this. So even though these words may be specific to the church in Ephesus, they are applicable to all churches everywhere at all times. So this is a message that Jesus may have for our church to reckon with today as well. Hear what The Spirit says to the churches, here's his promise. If you hear what I'm saying, if you return to your first love, hear this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lost that. They gave it up because of their sin, and they were banned from the presence of God. Banned from the presence of God. They were cast out from from the Garden of Eden, and they were unable to come back because it was guarded, um, it was guarded um, by, by angels, and they couldn't come back. Our sin separates us from God. He says, well, for the church who overcomes, the one who perseveres in faith, the one who continues to love me to the end, I will grant to eat of that tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a promise to every true believer that we will be with him for all of eternity, enjoying eternal life in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is intended to encourage the church to endure and persevere. Don't give up. Hang in there. It's worth it. It's worth it. Church, let's pray.